We're going to continue our series there that we started the last time, When God Calls Your Name Twice. And this morning, I want to look at the three times in the New Testament that Jesus called someone by their name two times. And Jesus uses this double salutation to get that person's attention. He called their name twice to reach out to them at a time and situation where he had something vitally important to say to them. And the first time Jesus did this is recorded in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, and I'll be using the NIV version this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to the Lord and asked him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And this is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus has come unexpectedly to visit with a family that he dearly loved, made up of two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus, whom he would raise from the dead in the future. Apparently, it was about supper time, I think. It could have been dinner time, lunch time, but I think supper time. When Jesus showed up at the door, and Martha said, come in, come in, sit down, Lord. I'll go to the kitchen and fix us something to eat. Now, can you imagine 13 hungry men who have been walking the better part of the day showing up at your front door unannounced? Now most people would immediately go into panic mode, but not Martha. She just invites Jesus along with his 12 hungry apostles to stay for supper. She hurries off to the kitchen, probably assuming Mary would be right behind her. But Mary goes with Jesus. Now, it's not long before Martha, busy in the kitchen, becomes very frustrated because Mary is in the living room enjoying herself while she does all the work of preparing the meal. And she is busy thinking so many things to do and so little time. And Luke sums up Martha's whole afternoon in one sentence. Verse 40, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, that's an interesting choice of words. So many times, the things we think are important are just distractions. And what has Mary been up to this whole time? And Luke answers that question too in verse 39. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Now, Martha's blood pressure 
reaches the boiling point every time she glances into the living room and sees her sister just sitting there at Jesus' feet, enjoying himself, herself. Now with everything still left to do, there sits Mary, totally oblivious to all the work that Martha is doing. And so finally, she's had it with Mary. And Martha does something unprecedented. Certain that Jesus will take her side, she interrupts Jesus' teaching and asks him in verse 40, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. There's an exclamation mark there. So you can imagine her tone. But Jesus gently rebukes her in verse 41 saying, Martha, Martha. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't say, now Martha, calm down. No, Jesus intentionally calls Martha by her name twice. And then once he has her attention, he gives the lesson she needs to hear at this point in her life. He says in verses 41 and 42, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. In other words, Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, you have let your life get so mixed up that you're putting the emphasis on the wrong things. Or, Martha, Martha, if you're not careful, you will spend your days so busy with trivial things that you will miss out on what is truly important. And I think this is a lesson that we all need to learn. You see, the fact is, many times, our frustration in life, our lack of joy, our lack of fulfillment, Many times all this stems from the fact that we are putting the emphasis on all the wrong things. Now, if you're like me, at the start of the day you may have every intention of being like Mary, cultivating a closer relationship with Jesus, but then things go awry. And suddenly, all of my good intentions disappear. And just like Martha, we are worried and upset about so many things. Now, it's no fun being worried or upset, is it? I didn't hear anybody. <laughs> Maybe everybody likes to be upset. <laughs> well, you don't want to feel like that, and neither do I. And God certainly doesn't want us to feel that way either. But worry has become so spiritually acceptable that many of us forget that worry is a sin. We do it all the time. So, instead of being worried and upset all the time, Jesus wants us to seek him first, and when we do, he'll personally eliminate a lot of our stress. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, reading from the New Living Translation, says, You, God, will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. 
When we fix our thoughts on Christ, we experience peace in His presence. Now, Martha's story serves as a powerful reminder of how important it is for all of us to slow down, focus on Jesus, and draw closer to Him. Now, I'm sure Martha's feelings were a bit hurt after Jesus called her name twice. No one enjoys being corrected. But Martha took Jesus' words to heart and learned from them. And the next time we see Martha in John chapters 11 and 12, we see a woman with an overwhelming desire to be in the presence of Jesus. And Martha's transformation spells hope for the rest of us. Now, the second time Jesus uses the double name is in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 34. Now read that from the NIV as well. Luke 22, 28 to 34. Here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the night of the first Lord's Supper. And he says, beginning in verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Now, Jesus here recognized that the disciples had been present and suffered with him during his earthly ministry. Verse 29, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me. Now, Jesus passed on his kingdom authority to the apostles who would continue planting the church, a part of the kingdom. And the authority that Jesus bestowed on them was like the authority that the Father had bestowed on him. In verse 30, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is a promise of future blessing and authority. The disciples were promised a seat at the banquet of victory and the right to help Jesus rule over Israel on his return. Now we come to the verse 31. <coughs> Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now the Greek word here for you here is plural, indicating that Satan had asked permission to trouble all of the disciples, all of his apostles. Verse 32. But I have prayed for you, now this is Jesus praying for him. Think about it. Anyway. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now the Greek word for you here is singular. Referring specifically to Peter. In effect, Jesus restored Peter even before his fall. And he instructed him to shepherd your brothers. But Peter replied... Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. It's just hours before the cross, and Jesus has his disciples gathered around him. And they have been with him for the past three years. And as he looks at them, there is a great strain of emotion in his heart because he knows what they don't. He knows that in a, a few hours, 
he will be arrested, beaten, and taken out to be nailed to a cruel Roman cross, where he would die for the sins of all mankind. I'm still on the mankind business. Humankind, it's, anyways. I like mankind because women are part of men too, right? Old men. So there. This sounds better. Jesus also knows what these disciples will go through over the next few days. And as he is thinking of all this, suddenly his eyes fall on Peter. And there is deep emotion in his heart and his voice as he cries out, not once, but twice, Simon, Simon. Now, notice that Jesus calls him Simon and not Peter. <clears throat> he refers to this big fisherman by his old name. And he does this to accentuate the weak part of Peter's nature and not the strong. It's like Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, be careful. You can be weak. Do not overestimate yourself. Satan has it in for you, Simon. He wants you. He's making plans to get to you, Simon. So watch out. In these next hours, remember, Simon, you don't have to be weak. You can be like a stone. And so in the next few hours, when Satan attacks, stand fast. Simon, Simon, stand fast. Be like a rock. In verse 31, Jesus issues a sober warning to him about Satan. Satan wanted to crush Peter and the others like grains of wheat. And ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has always stood opposed to God's people. And the Bible gives us a clear portrait of who Satan is and how he affects our lives. And the Bible defines Satan as an angelic being who fell from his position in heaven due to sin and is now completely opposed to God, doing all in his power to thwart God's purposes and tempt God's people. And twice in scripture, Satan is referred to as the tempter. In Matthew 4, verse 3, and in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. And that is his goal. He acts in a way that is subtle and seductive to tempt us step by step away from God. I read a story about this woman who comes home and shows her husband the expensive dress she just bought. And when her husband gets upset about how much money she spent, she jokes, well, the devil made me do it. Now, the husband says, you should have had said, get thee behind me, Satan. And the woman replied, I did. And he said it looked as good from the back as it does from the front. <laughs> now, we may laugh. But that's what Satan does. He makes sin look attractive and appealing. That's how the devil works. Peter, however, thought he was smarter and stronger than Satan. 
He replied to Jesus' warning about Satan in verse 33 with a declaration of dedication. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. <clears throat> in other words, he is saying, I would never lose my faith in you, Lord. I will never do anything to disappoint you. But Jesus knew that in less than 12 hours, Peter would deny his Lord three times. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'll just give him a sip. What the whistle? The Bible, <clears throat> excuse me, the Bible warns us <clears throat> not to make the same mistake. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. <clears throat> now one of the biggest mistakes we can make is believing that we are invulnerable, I got that word right, to Satan's attacks. Jesus warned Peter because Peter's problem was that he intended to be overconfident. And like many of us, he made the pride-filled statement, this is one thing I will never do. Now, we must never, or we must take care to never say things like that. Because if we do, it will mean that we will not guard that one area of our lives. We will pridefully believe ourselves incapable of that particular act and not guard against it. And we will make the same mistake Peter made in the difficult hours that lay ahead. Now, even though Christ warned Peter ahead of time, Peter did exactly what Jesus said he would do. And later in this same chapter, in verses 54 to 62, the temple guard arrives to arrest Jesus and leads him to the home of the high priest. And following at a distance, Peter waits in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, until a servant girl recognizes him and announces this man was also with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. And after a while, someone else makes the same claim. Claim, and, But Peter replies, I am not. And finally, the third person notices Peter's accent and again accuses him of being Jesus' disciple. And Peter started cursing and swore, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows three times today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter failed, <clears throat> excuse me, big time. But remember what Jesus said to him in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, turn to me again strengthen your, and strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew how badly Peter would stumble and fall. But he prayed that Peter's faith would be still intact. 
He knew that Peter would repent of his failure and renew his courage and convictions. And when that happened, Jesus wanted him to be there for the other disciples to strengthen their faith as well. Satan won a small battle in Peter's life, but Jesus would win the war. All of us stumble and fall. We all give in to temptation at times, but our failures do not define us. What we do next defines us. With this entire experience behind him, Peter would later write in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus called Peter's name twice to assure him that, yes, Satan is prowling around looking for someone to devour. And we're all vulnerable at times. But thanks to God's grace, we can experience forgiveness and a fresh start each time. <clears throat> the third person that Jesus calls by name twice is Saul, who eventually becomes Paul. And the story of Paul's encounter with Christ is so compelling that it's actually told three times in the book of Acts. First, as it happens in Acts chapter 9, which we'll be looking at in a few moments, and then him, Paul himself retells the story two more times in Acts 22 and chapter 26. Now, <clears throat> reading Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, also from the NIV, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told <clears throat> what you must do. Now this scene takes place in the early days of the church. Saul was a Pharisee from a very important Jewish family. And he once referred to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3 verse 5. In other words, when it came to religion, he was as religious as you could get. Saul was passionate about his religion, passionate enough that he couldn't stand the idea of anyone leaving Judaism to become a Christian. And so as Christianity began to spread throughout the Jewish community, his one goal in life was to round up all these Christians, people he thought as, as, of as false teachers. He passionately pursued these Christ followers all over Palestine, 
flogging them until they renounced their faith in Jesus. And those who remained firm in their faith, he sent to prison, <clears throat> or worse. And with permission from the synagogue leadership, he went to Damascus to try and rout out any Christians, followers of the way. That's a title for the followers of Jesus who were spreading this nonsense everywhere and put an end to the heresy. And on the road to Damascus, as we all know, he met our risen Jesus face to face. And that encounter changed everything, including Saul's name. He became Paul, the greatest Christian missionary the world has ever seen. Now, <clears throat> I don't know there's a frog in my throat. <clears throat> now, the thing I want you to know is that Saul sincerely thought he was doing the right thing. He thought his actions were pleasing to God. He thought that following religion was all it took for him to be righteous in the eyes of God. And it is at this literal crossroad of life that Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now what was Saul's response? He asked, who are you, Lord? Saul thought he knew God, or at least what God wanted, but he was wrong. God was a stranger to this very devoutly religious man. He met him face to face and didn't know him. So, do you know Jesus? Now, I'm not talking about if you know about him. I'm not asking how religious you have been in attending church. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? There is no more important question for all of us to consider because Saul's experience shows that it is possible for us to be very sincere in our religious practice but not actually, personally, know Jesus Christ. You see, unfortunately, if we are not careful, religious practice can act like a vaccine against genuine faith. Now, do you know how vaccine works? Doctors inject you with a tiny amount of a dead virus so as to protect you from the real thing. And religion can work like that. We come to church and worship religiously. We sing all the praise songs, but never act on what we hear. And in essence, with our religious practice, we vaccinate ourselves. We get enough lifeless religion in our veins to protect us from the real thing. And we think that going through the motions of religion is all it takes. Do you know Jesus? And Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. And that's in Revelation 3, verse 20. So was Jesus saying to anyone this morning, Son, Son, or daughter, daughter, open the door 
invite me in. And once Paul met Jesus, his life was never the same again. And God used him to take the gospel to people who desperately needed to hear of his great love. And God wants us to do the same with our lives. He wants us to take out his love to places it is needed. It doesn't have to be as a missionary away or missionaries at home, workplace and whatnot. Okay, so in conclusion, I do really hope you've been blessed by this two-part series, last, the other Sunday and this Sunday, and that you know that when God calls your name twice, some life, something life-changing is about to happen to you. God called Abraham twice to save his son and to remind him that nothing should take God's place in his life. He called Jacob twice to assure him that he didn't have to be afraid that he would be with him wherever he went. He called Moses twice because he saw the suffering of his people in Egypt and he wanted Moses to do something about it. He called Samuel twice to teach him how to listen to God's voice and to begin a lifelong conversation with him. He called Martha twice to tell her not to worry so much, but instead to enjoy the peace and intimacy with Jesus. He called Peter twice to warn him that he would be tested and tempted, but even if he fell, he could get back up and keep on going. And finally, he called Saul twice to make it clear that it is useless to fight against God's will for your life. And shall we bow in prayer? Father God, I pray that right now that you will speak to each of us. Call us by name in such a way that we listen. Then tell us the decisions we need to make to make our lives more pleasing to you. Speak to those of us who have our priorities out of whack and are experiencing the frustration and emptiness that comes from focusing on temporary things. Speak to those of us who have foolishly yielded to temptation. Forgive us and empower us to be strong, rock-like, when the adversary attacks. And Father, I pray you will speak very clearly to those who don't know you. Knock on their heart's door. In the power of your Spirit, give us all that hunger that only a personal relationship with you will satisfy. And challenge us all to be like your servant Paul. Make us bold witnesses who are eager to share your love whenever and wherever you give us an opportunity to do so. And I ask this in Jesus' wonderful, precious name. Amen.